0: Welcome to the Remarkable Retail Podcast, episode 12 Retail Without Boundaries. I'm Michael LeBlanc. And I'm Steve Dennis. In this episode, we're talking about essential number six connected with help from our very special guest, Mitch Joel, author, strategist, digital pioneer. We'll meet him and chat with him a bit later in the episode. Steve, your take on the connectedness of retail never been more important or, or more essential. The COVID crisis has turned retailers into live broadcasters, amplified their communities, it's been a lifesaver for many with their customers. Has this essential been changed or or amplified by the crisis?
1: Probably like everything, this is the recurring theme I think here is that that just about everything's been amplified. Um, But I think if we step back and think about what this essential is about, the, the reason I included Connected as its own thing in the framework is really twofold. One is what we've talked about in a lot of these essentials is just fundamentally how so many things have gone from being scarce to being abundant so if we think about the way we were connected years ago we had relatively few connections the, the people we were connected to were our family the people we worked with uh, you know maybe church groups or clubs we belonged to what have you but it was a pretty small world and then with the advent of the internet smartphones social media you name it suddenly we can be connected to just about anybody in the world you know either directly or maybe um, you know one or two points of separation away, as, as Mitch talks about in his book, Six Pixels of Separation. So, so I think this just explosion of connectedness is profound. The second part is how boundaries basically have been eroded through this mm. connectedness. So from a consumer standpoint, again, as I just said, we've got all sorts of ways to be digitally connected to people, whether it's through email, Snapchat, WhatsApp, or social media networks. But it goes beyond that in the way companies are able to work together. You know, so many retailers are now connected to their suppliers uh, through, and we've got the Internet of Things. There's a whole new technology impact over the last several years. The other thing is this connectedness and boundarylessness has created entirely new business models that weren't possible. So the so-called sharing economy has been driven by the degree to which we're also readily connected. So you've got these two-sided marketplaces like Uber where you, know, you can marry the drivers with the riders, or you've got these circular apparel markets where people have got clothes that they no longer want to use, and that can be resold through a marketplace like ThredUp and others. So there's just a whole shift in the way so many aspects of our lives operate, but also how many business models work today.
0: I mean, there's no question that being connected or the ability to be connected is no longer scarce, but, you know, we can connect practically to anybody at any time, anywhere, but attention isn't engagement, right? right? In other words, just because you can doesn't mean it's sticky. It's very, it's, it can be very transactional. You described, you know, these sharing marketplaces, the, the idea that, uh, you know, a customer is actually someone who buys twice. How do we become the signal, as you would say, among the noise? How do you stand out in a world where, like abundance, there's so much of it?
1: Well, I think the differentiating factor, probably no surprise, is to really do something that's truly remarkable, right? I mean, it's mm. it's so easy to get lost, whether, whether we're talking about selling average products in an average environment, on an average website, or whether we're posting content on TikTok or Instagram or whatever it might be, uh, that content which is really uh, wow-worthy and interesting, is the content that gets paid attention to. But more importantly, it's the content that gets shared. It's the ideas that spread. Hmm. So hmm. certainly there's kind of some basics. Like if you, have no, if you have no followers, right, it doesn't matter how remarkable your content is, it's not going anywhere. So, I mean, you need to build the pipe, I guess, or the wiring, so to speak, for it to spread. Uh, hmm. And that may take you time to build. But part of the way you build it is to keep showing up consistently with remarkable content and, um, and, and building that following, you know, that's, that's really the key because the world is just getting ever noisier, right? We have no limits to the distractions, um, that, that most of us face constantly. So, uh, you've got to build that foundation and then you have to consistently produce build that community and produce remarkable content.
0: Well, it's interesting that you know years ago gave, that thinking gave rose to, rise to the idea of a community manager within your social media platform. And and for many of us in the early days of social media it was it was really a labor of love. It was hard to balance those two things, create great content and build audience both at the same time. And um, you know, Mitch says in a digital world there's no longer degrees of separation between you and your customers. It, never more so now than before. I mean, we've seen retailers who already have a standing community of do better. I think in the COVID crisis in the early days than those who who didn't spend much time on community. But it's really an investment of time, and and it is an investment of passion. Can you turn that into strategy? Is this what you're what you're advocating?
2: Oh, I,
1: absolutely certainly the sometimes what gets a lot of coverage are kind of these flash in the pan things that happen, you know, uh the guy with the uh Fleetwood Mac video drinking. Yeah. But it,
0: it's like it's like when you give when you call up your ad agency, and say, Make me a viral video. <laughs> right.
1: right, right. And it's fantastic. <laughs> I if, know what yeah, when yeah. it happens, right, you you, you mm. get lightning in a bottle or whatever that expression is. But um it's it's pretty hard to do that reliably. So I think as a matter of strategy, you have to understand the -hmm. customers that you really desire to win, grow, keep, retain, get to spread your story. You have to understand them as best you can in terms of their needs and wants and create the ability for and desire for them to engage with you in a more meaningful way. And then, like I said, just keep, keep creating that remarkable content but you know in a lot of cases I think w- what's working very well for some retailers is this co-creation with people right like mm. it's just not mm. a one-way street where you sit in a well you don't do this anymore I guess we sit in a virtual conference room and, and create these strategies and then you shoot them out and you hope hope it takes hold I think in in a lot of cases the the folks that are really building this great community great content and, and getting connected in a really deep way, are those that are inter- engaging and interacting with the audience, not just shooting out things in a one-way direction. I guess my,
0: my follow-up question would be, in such a digital Universe, Such a digitally dominated universe that we're in today. What's the role of that kind of behavior, creating community in your physical stores? Because that's where this all stems from. I mean, physical, physical retail has always had a big focus on being part of your community, right? Whether it's that sponsoring, you know, some of your customers, kids, uh, soccer team or whatever. So it's not new that retailers would try to create a community to be better than the part, you know, the whole better than the parts of it. Some, can you overshoot the runway creating too much focus on digital? Is there, is best ideas around making this connectedness both for your
1: physical presence and your digital presence? The thing to do is to really understand the strengths and the limitations of all the different media, right? So, Hmm many digital channels have the advantage of oftentimes being quite inexpensive fast uh, ability to amplify and scale in ways that you really would be hard pressed to do in a physical environment right, but right. physical environments can do all sorts of things that that for the most part digital can't so yeah. uh Obviously, we're in this period right now where the some of the advantages of a physical store really can't be leveraged particularly well either because stores aren't open or they're at twenty five percent capacity or you know or they're whatever, they're yeah. just you know operating in a fundamentally different way than they did a year ago. So, so I think that hopefully will be a relatively short lived phenomenon. But going forward, I think it's about understanding the the relative advantages and disadvantages of different ways of engaging. It's also about understanding the differences in, you know, last episode we talked about, uh, I think it was the last episode, we talked about treating different customers differently. That takes a recognition that not everybody is the same and not everybody is going to value the same thing. So you may very well have people that are, hey, I'm all about community in the store. I want to go to a yoga class or I want to gather with the bike club or, you know, whatever it might be, have that face-to-face connection, try things in person. Others, uh, again, I'm not making this specific to what's going on with COVID, but just in general, others may say, you know, that's, that your store's too far away from me, or that's just, that's my thing. I'm, I'm more shy. I'd rather kind of cover the the landscape of places to connect, not, not go deep on one or two things.
0: Listen. Let's. Uh, that's a good segue. Let's bring Mitch on, and uh, let's have a listen to our interview uh, with this digital pioneer.
1: Well, welcome to the podcast, Mitch Joel. I'm. Uh, I was trying to think about when I first learned about you. I believe I first heard about you through our mutual friend Seth Godin, probably at least ten years ago. But you were nice enough to have me on your podcast, Six Pixels of Separation, a little while back. But now the tables are turned. So. Welcome.
2: Well, I'm happy to be here. And and, and similarly, I, I heard I'd heard of you and I didn't realize your relationship with Seth, and I was jealous. So I thought I might as well have him on my podcast. I mean, anybody who's with Seth's best man at, at his wedding, and, and and vice versa, from what I hear, I thought, well, I should get to know that person. That's great.
0: Well, and Mitch, you and I go back even a bit longer, right? We've known yeah. each other literally decades. You've been a guest on my podcast, The Voice of Retail, and your your famous line Uh, You and I, our interview was in Montreal in the the Queen Elizabeth Hotel. And when you walked in the hotel room, you, you said you were relieved not to find plastic sheeting on the floor. (laughs) <laughs> so you knew you were you, you knew you were in for a good interview when uh things looked kind of copacetic from that so it's great to hear your voice again mitch um i, I wish we could be seeing each other in person but uh, this is as close as we can get from toronto to montreal so welcome
2: thanks for having me. yeah anytime someone invites me up to their hotel room i'm just immediately expecting a scene out of american psycho to break out so it's great <laughs> i'm glad that it didn't <laughs>
1: Uh, no, no, Huey Lewis on the yes, soundtrack. Uh, don't. You know. Hopefully, uh, you don't get to know be known as the Rudy Giuliani of Canada. But uh,
2: exactly, yeah. I'm just. I was just adjusting my mic. I swear. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, thankfully, you can't make the, like honestly, you can't make this stuff up. anyway,
2: it's all true. Well,
1: thankfully, <laughs> no, thankfully, no video uh, on this particular media form here. So, but anyway, Mitch, just for the few people that perhaps have no idea who you are. You've stuck around
2: this far. (laughs) We've we've
1: chased them all the way at this point, but perhaps you could just tell us a little bit more about who you are and what you do, and then we will jump into our questions.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a long-sorted story, but I'm kind of a, a, a retail brought up in retail my father was a pharmacist and owned uh, a pharmacy and here where I live Montreal Quebec only a pharmacist licensed can own a pharmacy and on Sundays which again if you know Quebec back in, in those days stores weren't open but pharmacies were allowed to be open. And I just thought my dad was the coolest, like he knew everybody because we'd be going to all these pharmacies and we'd be talking to people. And I found out years later that he was basically just going around trying to figure out what they're doing from a merchandising perspective and what's happening out front beyond the dispensary and, you know, the health and beauty bars, salons that they had set up along the sort of side of the store. Um, and then from there, I just, always love the smell of commerce in the morning. Like I just love retail. I love, I don't like buying that much. I just like being in stores to this day. I can't walk past the pharmacy. My wife thinks I'm doing inventory control. Like I have this job somewhere else. Um, And professionally, I was a music journalist, got involved in one of the first search engines because I had done a lot of writing around the internet and technology. And then inevitably wound up in 2000 being a part of a digital marketing agency that became one of the largest independent digital marketing agencies in Canada that we sold to WPP about six years ago. And that agency was renamed and rebranded to Mirum. And when I left that agency about two years ago, it was about 3,000 people in 30 countries. Mm -hmm. And in in between that, I wrote two books. One of them was called Six Pixels of Separation, named after my blog and podcast that I've been doing for a long time. And the second one is called Control-Alt-Delete. And now when there's not COVID-19 spread everywhere, I would typically be spending my time doing a lot of uh, keynote presentations, uh, and still just being in the media, creating content, do a lot of investing and advising. And that's a long way of saying, I don't know how to explain what I do.
0: <laughs> I it's a, in other words, it's a long elevator ride.
2: Yeah, it's a long elevator ride. Exactly. Well, the Burj Khalifa uh, of elevator pitches, yeah. Uh,
1: maybe this is too big a question, but uh, you know, when we think about retail and we think about What we're talking about today, this this idea of connected, right? Being being connected goes back a long, long time as far as retail, right? Back to the earliest marketplaces, souks, bazaars, you know, you you name it, Uh, and and everywhere up to today. How how do you think connectedness has fundamentally changed over time? And particularly, I guess, um, as you kind of get into, uh, kind of, you get into a lot in your book, six pixels of separation. How how fundamentally connectedness has changed, and what that means for retail?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. I don't know if it's changed so much as retailers have struggled to adapt with the way people are connected and communicate. I think that's more of the sort of moral fiber of what I've seen from clients that I represented, and then just being out in the speaking world and connecting to people who want me to give give their give them my opinion of what's happening if I think back to the early days of digital and how we were seen as being these trailblazers or my writing or books or podcasts were seen as being so-and-so new and different, it's because I simply looked at retail or brands in general as this sort of three-way thing of content, commerce, and community. Like if you really wanted to build something that had a real form of connecting with customers. You had to create content because content became an engine of media. You needed to think about building community. And I don't mean community being every single customer it doesn't need to be a part of it. But when you have a handful a big handful, a a master size handful of people who want more and more to not feed them, be a part of it, engage with them and connect to them is is silly, which again, to this day, a lot of retailers don't do. And then obviously the commerce part of it, which is you don't have to necessarily bash people over the heads to put something into the basket. But if you get the content correct and you get the comp community, right? It kind of feeds itself. it, It builds on itself, And then there's this whole other component of it of of really thinking about what you want from direct response versus brand building and storytelling. If you were to ask any smart person what would be the right split between direct response actions and brand storytelling... You'd probably go, I don't know, 50-50 sounds about right. But if you look at the landscape of retailers and what they're doing, it's probably Mm, 95-5, 95% direct response. I mean, we're recording this on Cyber Monday, so just take a look at your feed if you don't believe me. And it's interesting because in order for there to be an exit, in order for them to scale or grow, they need a better story. So there is an inequity in what we think logically about brand storytelling and building that against direct response in relation to what their actual spend and time is, is spent doing.
1: Yeah, one of the things, um, that brings up a good point, one of the things we've talked about on several episodes so far is why it takes retailers or, I guess, companies more broadly, why does it take them so long to see and act on these changes? What, what, what's your perspective on that?
2: Retail, fundamentally, is still driven by a, what are we paying per square footage? It's, it's a strange way to reflect when digital comes in and e-commerce comes in but a lot of retailers are more in the real estate business than they are in the retail business still to this day yeah so when we talk about that change it's kind of mind-blowing to me that that's the perspective you would sit down with a major retailer and talk about a website overhaul or shifting over to shopify or whatever it might be and you'll put a number in front of them and they'll gasp and that number is like a 10th of what it would cost them to open up one more physical store. And even back in the day, we're talking, again, 2003, 2004, I would be speaking to new retailers who were coming on the scene or ones that existed about just web, forget even social, and newsletters and all that sort of stuff. If I started the conversation by saying, would it offend you if the price of a website were the price of one store, they would, you know... What are you talking about? Like, we could get that for a 100th of that price. And it was less about the money and more about what are you actually committing to. Seeing the reactions to that is, is very indicative of it. Also understand that, you know, Michael and I are sitting here in the Great White North while you're sitting there in the great United States. And the difference of human to retail space per capita is astonishing, so we also tend to look at the winners and losers by, you know, what's optically there, but it's kind of an unfair way to look at it. If you, if you are so over indexed on square footage of retail per person, uh, by, per capita, it puts you in, in a way different position than in Canada where, you know, my joke is how many cities are there in Canada really? You know, it's not to be insulting, but it's Toronto as a, as a dominant. And then you're talking about this weird East coast, West coast dish type of Vancouver, Montreal. And then there are others for sure. I mean, I'm not belittling Ottawa, I'm not belittling Calgary, but in terms of real, people that have powerful pockets to go to stores in comparison to the states where we're a 10th of the size, you can start seeing the challenges that that we face, even when it came to things like adopting e-commerce and stuff like that. So it's, it's, it's really challenging for a retailer to think about it because even geographically, we're so diametrically opposed in terms of what's possible.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'm wondering how much in your experience you think it's a It's a bit of an attribution issue, a bit of a silo organization issue. And the reason I ask is i've I've found um, from some of the consulting work I've done as well as some of the corporate jobs I've had, that we we started to see, for example, in Neiman Marcus, the degree to which e-commerce was driving physical store sales and vice versa. Yet, because of the way we measured things and paid incentives, there was a tendency for those organizations to work independently. It was harder, even though we did invest a lot of money in e-commerce, it was hard to invest as much as we should have if we had understood the full effect on the brand. And, and I'm wondering whether that was your has been your perspective as well.
2: Totally. And the reason why you had that struggle, Steve, is because you walked into the situation as the retailer, not as the customer. So I'll spin your exact dilemma by being a customer and I'm a strange customer. I only wear black as both of you probably know. Um, but I'll walk into a store and I'll want 10 pairs of this pair of jeans that I love in black, same size, same style. It's all I want. I just want to have my, my, I call it my Richie rich, uh, wardrobe where it's like every day is just pull off whatever pair is there. Same uniform every day. And I walk into the store, let's say the jeans are on sale. They're about 70 bucks. I want 10 pairs. We only have two. Okay. See you later versus why would you not let me pay for 10 and send me the other eight digitally, right? It's just an e-commerce transaction that happens physically in the store and it's done. And it sounds so basic and common, but there to this, in this moment, or according to this November 30th, 2020, how many retailers could do that? How many retailers, if I'm sitting on the floor and a product isn't there, but they have it online, will tell me, well, you can go and order that online. Why don't you order it for me online and I'll just give you the money right now. And then I can even decide, do I come back here to pick it up? Do you send it to my house? Help me help you. I'm trying to give you 10 times the money I was about to pay the cash. Instead, you're letting me walk out that door. Yeah. And so if we think about it from that perspective of what would be the better solution for the customer, you start seeing answers. And by the way, we saw a lot of that transpire here during COVID-19. I'm, I'm thinking about major national retailers who suddenly really woke up to curbside pickup. And suddenly you could order it online, pull up not that long after, call a phone number, have a sales associate come out, put in your trunk, contact and you drive off. You've been experiencing that more at scale in the U.S., but in Canada, it was almost non-existent, basically. And by the way, a lot of these retailers started sucking really quickly after that. It's like You'd pull up and you'd call the number, and they'd say, come on in. No, that's not exactly what I want to do here. And that's not what I did last week. But it's easier for them. You know, that Neiman Marcus example, to me, just reinforces that more often than not, retailers are thinking what's easier for them, not necessarily what's going to be best for the customer, and in turn, actually have real, you know, commercial impact on us as a return.
1: Yeah, you know, the thing is crazy, and I'll I'll let Michael get in here, but a couple things that are crazy. One is, some of the things that you were mentioning Ah, uh, there were companies like Nordstrom that were doing them. You know, two thousand five, two thousand six. So it's, it's interesting when you see companies that have put a lot of these capabilities into place and having a lot of success doing them. That, that more retailers don't follow. The other thing was, I went into, uh, I I bought something online and I went to return it at a particular retail's retailer's store. And the salesperson was kind of mystified by the packaging or something. And, and, uh, she said, well, w- where did you buy that? And I said, I bought it online. And she said, oh, that's not us. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. I, don't, I don't want to say who it is. Okay, well, it's Crate and Barrel. Uh, and, you know, it it's be, amazing. There it should be an IBM commercial about that. Yeah, but I mean, it's, it's like, really amazing. This was just a few months ago. So it's really amazing to me how, um, that's why I'm just fascinated by why it takes takes a, a crisis in many cases for and retailers again, this, to innovate.
2: The, the simplicity of it, too. I, I, again, so look, we become habituated. Now, I've been habituated to this for much longer than the average citizen and that's fine i i I lived in a world where i wasn't at 19 or 15 percent e-commerce versus total commerce world pre-pandemic i was probably closer to the numbers we're seeing now in that 40 to 50 range but it's infuriating when i go online and i'm looking for something and they've got the real-time inventory and i see 10 are in store and i get in the car drive out to the store and oh no we haven't updated that's all gone we don't have any of that And I'm seeing zeros and threes in other stores. I'm choosing the one that has the highest inventory because I know that that happens. So the reverse is true also, where we don't see retailers... God, I hate the word omni-channel. I I mean, I hate it because the the whole channel part should just be eradicated. It's just, you're, you're a retailer. What is the easiest way to get me to buy from you? In fact, more often than not, customers are telling you exactly what they need and you're letting them walk out that door. It's absurd to me. It's absurd. Mitch, let's shift
0: gears a little bit. You've been tracking social, digital media, digital connectedness for, for decades. Is it, is it possible that we've gone too far, particularly with the COVID era? We, we, we read together, I'm sure, the, the studies pre-COVID and the before time where, you know, the stress that was – it was isolating effect. There was stress. Um, we saw kids who were saying, I'm going to go to the ball just to get away from social media. Where do we go wrong? Where's social connectedness gone wrong? And, and has that been accelerated like other things in the, in the COVID era?
2: I don't think it's gone wrong. The things that made social media so incredible from day one are still the things that make it incredible and in day whatever day we're in meaning the ability for an individual to have an idea and publish and or share that idea in text, images, audio, and video instantly and for free to either the quote-unquote world or their network is an astounding transformation of communication that cannot be undermined. And we just can't look at it and go, wow, that we broke democracy, as we like to hear as as Mm -hmm. as as a thing. What happened is everybody... Had that right. And so everybody used that right. And all we see is a multiplication of problems that come with it. And then as people are clicking around in the simplicity of the algorithms, it starts making choices for us that are probably not as as worldwide eye opening as it is central to who we are. So what we see is we go from a world where you'd open up a newspaper magazine and go from different section to different sections that that have been editorialized with different ads to a world where I only need to see what I like or who I like. Mm -hmm. And that creates not a global perspective, but a very myopic one, which results in a lot of the things we're seeing. Now, I'm not going to be a technology apologist, nor am I going to be someone who should have been starring in The Social Dilemma on Netflix because I didn't necessarily like that one either. But what I will say is that Government intuitively wants to understand where big tech is at, in particular, what we're seeing election after election, and and rightfully so. Um, So that's one side of it. If you think about traditional media and just how the media talks about technology and social, I mean, you have to ask yourself, whose best interest is it for, public good or their own pocketbooks? Hmm. Now, the truth is, If 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 traditional media can dismantle Facebook, Google, Apple, Netflix, Amazon, etc., all that money potentially flows back to them that was already robbed by them. I'm not trying to be a conspiracy theorist. I'm just saying there's you have to follow the money in certain aspects of it. And the reason I say both of those things is because if you look at user adoption, we're just not seeing it. We're not seeing this uproar concern about privacy. We're not seeing this uproar in terms of usage or people quitting or people leaving Facebook and they leave Facebook and go to Instagram, which is owned by Facebook. Okay. (laughs) You know? Uh, Okay. You're not really. Seeing that in terms of advertising dollars going there, and again, people talk about brand awareness and look what happened with brand safety and all these retailers and people freaking out. Fine, but look at when they decided to freak out. They decided to freak out during COVID-19, which was following a a moment that they got very, very nervous. And instead of saying, we're cutting our marketing and advertising budget, which is what every brand does in a moment like this, they blamed it on big tech. We're trying to be do this for the safety of our customers, Right. And again, I'm not trying to be a tech apologist. There's just more than one story to this. Should big tech be regulated? Yes. The social media need to figure out what can and can't be said on their platforms. No, they shouldn't. I don't know about you. I don't want any for-profit organization making calls on how we define free speech. I think the government should. I think the government should regulate. I think they need to figure out what that looks like because how do you break up Amazon? What is Amazon? Is it a bookseller? Is it Amazon Web Services? Is it Whole Foods? What is it? How do you, You're going to break it up and basically have all the companies that they've acquired just be separate stocks. So who wins there? Right.
0: Well, let, let me pull on that thread a little bit more and uh, ask about, you know, I think for 2020, the focus is on keeping for retailers, certainly keeping their people healthy and safe and keeping their customers healthy and safe. I think 2021 will turn our minds to keeping them mentally safe in terms of, you know, for all of us kind of keeping us sane and mental health will be the key in 2021. What role can, can you see social media and connectedness having to, to help us pull it all together in the, in the balance of the COVID era?
2: Well, it's very noisy and loud. and, And how I would approach that question is a little bit differently. What I would say is in a very simplistic way, physical shopping, is that physical shopping online has traditionally been a buying channel, not a shopping channel. And what COVID showed me at least is that when you go to physical stores now, they're sterile for my hygiene, but they're deadly to my experience. (laughs) (laughs) So it's like the hand, you know, the, 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 sanitizers, the distance, the masks that don't touch anything. What's happened is physical retail, which was traditionally a social shopping experience has become extremely transactional and extremely buying based. And on the flip side of that, because of what we're seeing because of powerhouses like Shopify and Amazon and just individuals understand they need to be more digital as retailers, is they're trying to figure out now how do we make the digital experiences more of a shopping experience that is not just purely transactional. And so instead of attacking it from the perspective of social media, what I think will be the most interesting aspects of retail right now is how physical stores think differently about what they consider to be experiences And on the other side, how the DTCs or digital arms of retailers figure out how do we engage people in a more entertaining social way through the digital channels. And I believe the answer to the question is that we went through this period of the chief experience officer and it's about the experience of the chief customer officer and all that sort of stuff. I really believe that services are the new experience. That the retailers that are going to really win are the ones that can add layers of service on top of the experience and again the story i talk a lot about uh when i close my keynote is about norman's rare guitars out in tarzana a small independent retailer that sells music instruments norm not only built a massive youtube following which is fascinating to see and he's a youtuber one aspect of that is he's telling his story in a unique way. He's, he's actually generating more money out of his YouTube channel than he ever spent on local advertising. at people in the store guitars that were eight, $10,000 would sit on the shelves for eight, nine months are sold the day of a video posted of a guitar of the day. But more interestingly, he launched something called the all guitar network, which is essentially Netflix or the golf channel for people who love the guitar to run with a very small team uh, but he is becoming the de facto person to talk about when it comes to guitars. He was before, but now even more so. That is a service, it's not a product. The All Guitar Network is a service that people pay a small monthly fee for. They're in it, they're a part of it. It's not even attached to his brand, but it can be. And I think that the brands, the retailers that can think about even their YouTube channel and every subscriber. As it being a service offering to make them a better customer, there's tremendous wealth in, in that in that chain, which is the connection to the original question about social.
1: So, is that any different than thinking about either you know some folks have folks have talked about you know focusing on the customer jobs to be done or selling a whole solution or or those kinds of kinds of ideas? You know, what's that higher order problem you're solving or experience? you're creating. Is what you're suggesting fundamentally different than that or a similar kind of idea?
2: Well, it goes back to the idea that I will steal from Avinash Kaushik from Google, who's one of the analytics geniuses there in general, but, but he happens to be at Google. And he would often say that a customer is somebody who buys from you twice. And that's the simplistic way of saying, what are we doing to ensure that they actually do come back? Because if all we're doing is having a greater selection of inventory and pricing, right? I don't know if that is going to take you forward in a world where suddenly we shut shut down the best the best restaurants and they were offering takeout and free pickup when all that chef wanted really is to have his 40 people in that restaurant on that night and everyone else to wait 6 months for the reservation. So it's just a different way to think about what do you want from your actual customer? And if you're norm and suddenly you're generating more revenue than you spend on advertising by having a YouTube channel, you're doing more than that. You're building community. You're building the brand story. You're making people want to come by even just to pick up a T-shirt because that place has become so cool. And then what you're fulfilling on the other side with the All Guitar Network is is to a certain degree empowerment. You're empowering the customer to really go as deep or or, or, or as wide as they want. I mean, it can be a pond or it can be a very deep ocean, your, your retail brand, and, and it's the experience you're willing or wanting to create that's going to ultimately make that factor in a world where dollar stores do phenomenally well, in a world where your TJ Maxxes had to figure out digital in a different way because their core was people like to come and dig for a find. And they don't necessarily want that find times 500 and three different colors online.
1: Unfortunately, we're coming up on our time. I'm going to ask you a final question that I think is a relatively short question, though the answer may not be. One of the quotes I have in the book, uh, not in this particular chapter, but but earlier on is one you probably know by, um, uh, I think it's by Herbert Simon, which is, a wealth of information creates a poverty of attention. I'm wondering if you believe that a wealth of connectedness creates a poverty of engagement or enrollment. And if so, uh, any quick tips for for retailers to try to Change things in their favor.
2: Yeah, I'm not sure if I buy into that. I'm thinking about some of the bigger purchases I made while sitting here in my home studio versus going to my office of just seven minutes away and how powerful of an engine community was in fostering that decision. I'm literally looking at some really amazing hardware for recording and streaming and video and and virtual keynotes. And there's nothing here that I would have bought outright had there not been a 20-minute video by someone like me Mm. demonstrating it and showing what it is and watching the comments and then seeing the issues around it. Case in point is I did order one of the new MacBook Pros that's coming, these M1 chips, whatever they're called. And I'm really nervous about using it because a lot of the community dialogue is around problems with that upgrade. And now I'm sitting here going, well, I guess I'll keep my old MacBook Pro until I really see the efficacy of it performing with the software that I need to perform with. So it's a clever twist of words, and I'm not saying there's no value in that quote or the potential of it to be effective for certain customer bases, but it depends where you're playing if you're looking for me as a customer, I want to go deep and that includes things like, you know, field notes, which I love their notebooks and just seeing everybody geek out over colors and different lines and types of pens that work with it. It's that stuff that gets me further down the rabbit hole and keeps me more engaged with the brand. But uh, your mileage may vary, as our friend Seth Godin likes to say.
1: <laughs> yes, which I which I uh, shamelessly rip off all the time. So yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mitch, thanks thanks so much. This has been great. We could we could obviously go on for hours here. I would uh, encourage those that are intrigued, which I imagine would be just about everybody, to go check out not only uh, Mitch's two great books, but his blog and the seven hundred and how many podcasts are we up to
2: now? I try not to keep count, but I just did notice there's over 750 of <laughs> them.
1: <laughs> so just a little bit of content. Uh, he practices what he preaches. But uh, thanks again, Mitch, and I hope you have a great holiday season and stay safe.
2: Well, happy holidays, and thanks so much. Always a pleasure to be a part of this. So thanks, Michael and Steve. I really enjoyed our time together.
1: Thanks, Mitch. It was great
0: uh, hearing your voice again. Steve, it was so great. Listening to Mitch, I mean, I've known Mitch for literally since the late '90s, uh, where he was espousing ideas that uh, at that time were almost unimaginable. Yet the unimaginable is happening, and in <laughs> every day, whether it's accelerated or whether it's been, uh, you know, it's been brought on or whether it just was inevitable, it was going to happen. Is that your observation? And, and what were your thoughts from listening to uh, to Mitch talk about his connection with retail?
1: I was a little bit late to the Mitch show. And uh but as Mitch I Mitch Fan Club. Let's well, call let's call it for what it is. We're the Mitch Fan Club. Well one of the one of the things I say in the acknowledgement to my book is mm. is uh that I wanted to write a book for thirty years and I got here as fast as I could. And that that's the way I feel about lots of aspects of my life. I wish I wish I'd gotten there earlier, but as it turns out I got here as fast as I could. And Mitch Mitch is just such a great guy. His perspectives are so rich, so deep. The thing that that you know, we were talking about off mic is there are a few of these books, uh, or they could be TED Talks, whatever, that were just so ahead of ahead of mm-hmm. their time. When I went back to reread Six Pixels of Separation, his first book, which I think came out eleven, twelve years ago or something, I forget, I was just blown away by how on the money he was about what was going to happen and what brands should be paying attention to that they weren't, and of course, many of them to their own to their own detriment. So there they're just a few people that their stuff I'm just continuing to be blown away by how prescient they are and how on top of things. And uh I would heed their warnings, <laughs> basically, because uh the, those that were ahead of the game did well and uh and what what's that expression? He who hesitates is is lost. And in you know many cases it's really hard to catch up.
0: We had a good wide-ranging conversation from everything from retail strategy to policy, but I wanted to hone in on this idea that you talk about about this fourth place. So tell me a little bit about that. We know what, tell us what the third place is, but the fourth place is that these social media platforms. It's, it's the new and evolving chase the latest, but figure out how it fits in as you just said before the interview the broader brand strategy before you go chasing a new platform. It's 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 you don't want to do that vice versa, right?
1: Yeah. So when I first started writing and speaking about a fourth place, it was it was rooted in uh, what many people are probably familiar with, which is this idea that the first place is your home, the second place in your life is your the place you work. And then, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago, people started talking about a third place, which was you know, coffee shop or, or some other place you went uh, that became important to you in in your life, and in some cases, that's just to go have coffee and, and sit on your laptop. What I started to think about was this fourth place being wherever you happen to be, because by virtue of being connected all the time, and I don't mean you know connected through social media necessarily, but because of smart devices we can do, you know, run our lives in many cases for better or worse, wherever we happen to be with a smartphone. So so this notion of home, office, and other is blurring. What I think has really started to evolve in the last, well, certainly accelerated by COVID, but I think was happening earlier are these companies that are building business models that really are portable. So think about some of these fitness apps that live on your smart device, right? You can use them when you're at the health club. You can use them when you're running on the jogging path. You can use them from home when you want to do a routine. Maybe you're on your Peloton and you're using an app, but maybe you're not. And so it's kind of managing your life or important mm. aspects of your life in this fourth place, which is the smart device wherever you happen to be. And I think the new, uh, uh, the new Lululemon smart mirror. Right. Idea. I mean there's That's there's a, a series of these models that that are revolving. And I think it's certainly well, absolutely enabled by digital technology, supported by smart devices. And I think what's happened societally, particularly by virtue of COVID is we've now said, well, I've got to be able to do all the stuff I need to do from wherever I happen to be because I'm not going to the office, or I'm not doing the commute, or I'm not doing, you know, going and hanging out at the the Starbucks or the independent coffee shop for a few hours. I don't, I don't have that long plane ride
0: to get the presentation together anymore. Anyway, right. So,
1: so, yeah. so there's this. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I'm still, and if if uh, mm-hmm. listeners have ideas, I'm I'm still working working through this. But I, but I, th- I think this this it's just redefined a lot of the ways we think about location uh, and business models um, fundamentally. And then, of course, it's put on steroids because we can be in connection with with our colleagues or with followers on Twitter or, you know, in some cases, pretty random people we happen to intersect with on, on social media or elsewhere.
0: Well, I think I, let's leave it there. I mean, we, we, I love the conversation because it's tied together this essential into all the others, and and it is by its very nature connected to the uh, to the balance of the the essential. So it's been a great discussion, great guest with uh, with Mitch joining us. So uh, Steve, why don't you read us out?
1: If you like what you heard, please subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. We'd really appreciate that elusive five star review, and we'd also appreciate it if you might share. podcast with your friends colleagues or others in the retail cpg or brand industries i'm steve dennis you can learn more about me at stephenpdennis.com or follow me on twitter or linkedin for my latest insights
0: and i'm michael leblanc producer host of the voice of retail podcast you can learn more about me on melblanc.co steve have a safe week you too